This week, we continue our series called Five Red Words, where we're looking at five of the last things that Jesus said before he died. Last week, we were in Luke chapter 23, looking at verses 32 to 35, resting in Jesus' statement, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We spent time talking about forgiveness, how we have been called to forgive extravagantly, irresponsibly. We saw how telling someone that you forgive them is saying to them, I see you the way that God sees me. And though we recognize that is hard, it isn't easy, it can be painful and feel unfair, that ultimately that is what we are called to. We don't have to like it, but that God will walk the journey with us, shaping us and molding us and helping us to forgive. This week we're going to move just a few verses farther along. Still in the book of Luke, still in chapter 23, we're going to move to verses 39 to 43. At this point in the narrative, Jesus has been nailed to the cross, his clothes have been gambled upon by the soldiers, and people are mocking him, saying that if he truly is the Son of God, that he would then have the power to save himself. So let him. Among these mockers are the thieves that are on the crosses next to him, one on his right and one on his left. When I'm up here, I never know if I should do stage right, stage left, what that looks like. I do know the difference between my right and my left, but right, left, we'll do that way for you. Okay. That's where we pick up this morning with our text. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn now to Luke 23, verses 39 to 43. If you do not have a Bible with you, but prefer that tangible feel of the text in your hands, there should be a Bible on the back of the pew in front of you. However, for convenience, the words will be on the screens beside me. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of the word. Again, Luke 23, 39 to 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me. In paradise. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. As a kid, I, I loved the heroes. My favorite heroes... We're also kind of bad guys. I mean, and if I'm being real, I still tend to gravitate towards those characters. The Han Solos, right? The, the rogue who's a, a smuggler who breaks the law but has the heart of gold buried underneath layers of cynicism and reality. Aladdin, the, the diamond in the rough, the street urchin who steals to survive but is more a victim of circumstance than he is a villain. Or how about the classic Robin Hood, stealing from the rich to give to the poor, clearly doing illegal things. We all know that stealing isn't okay, but desperate times call for desperate measures, right? 
The rich, the corrupt, made the rules, and they have set things up to to squash, to keep their boot on the poor. Someone needs to stick up for them. Someone needs to color outside the lines a little bit. And we see that, we we feel that, we can relate to that. And so, yeah, we we cheer for the anti-hero. We cheer for the one that knows you need to break a few eggs to make an omelet. We get it. I mean, I, I love those types of characters, the lovable rogues. The misunderstood rule breakers, the thieves with the heart of gold. Maybe part of the reason that we like those types of characters is because we can relate to them. Maybe we realize that we aren't the hero. We're not the role model. We've, we've made too many mistakes. We've, we've made too many decisions that we regret. We recognize that we're too far down the wrong road to pretend to be the hero. But we're not so far gone that there isn't some good we can do. We're salvageable right? We're not all bad. We, we have some morality to us, a strong moral compass, or at least one that is mostly functioning, but also a willingness to understand what needs to be done and to see it through. Robin Hood knew that the sheriff of Nottingham was a bully hiding behind a badge. He knew that the king didn't deserve his crown, was just a placeholder while the rightful king was off on a crusade in the Holy Land. Someone had to break the law to keep the peace. Someone had to stick up for the little guy. Someone had to be the good thief. As we draw connections between ourselves and the good thieves of fiction and fantasy, I wonder if we don't also draw connections between ourselves and what we classify as the good thieves of history. Like maybe the thief in our text this morning, the thief on the cross. Historians tell us that the thieves crucified on either side of Jesus were likely zealots, people who were enemies of the Roman state and and sought to overthrow them. We would call them extremists today, and they went to horrid and terrible lengths to make their political and religious points. We don't know exactly what these men did, but being labeled as thief gives us a pretty good idea, though crucifixion isn't a typical sentence for a thief. They were clearly something much more, so we don't know exactly what criminal activity had them in this terrible situation next to Jesus, but we know by the admission of one of them that they had earned their places of torment. And torment they received. I don't want to spend too much time on the horrific details of what it meant to be crucified, the pain involved, but think for a minute on the reality that the word excruciating translates to out of the cross. The word that we have to describe the most intense pain gains its meaning from this awful form of execution. It's the worst. Nails through your hands and your feet, your shoulders needing to support the weight of the body, making it progressively harder to breathe needing to push against the nails in your feet so that you can get up and get air. And as you push up, your back fills with splinters from the rough wood. Most people died on the cross when they had hung there so long that the soldiers came and broke their legs so that they could no longer lift themselves up to get breath. And so they suffocated. There are not many worse ways to meet your end. And here are these zealots hanging between Jesus. In the book of Mark, we read that both of the criminals that were crucified with him reviled him. They mocked him. 
They endured the excruciating pain of lifting themselves up for air, and instead of using that breath to keep themselves from suffocating, they expelled it at Jesus in verbal abuse. And the anger of one continues to to spill out while the other grows reflective and quiet. The first criminal continues to voice his frustration with Jesus. They're all in a helpless situation. But isn't this man, the one they call the king of the Jews, the one with the crown of thorns pressed into his brow, isn't he supposed to be the all-powerful Messiah? It's hard not to relate to the first criminal's anger. As a zealot, he would have wanted to overthrow Rome. Right? He would have wanted a political savior, and Jesus had been a crushing disappointment. Here was one more chance to mock, to take a lifetime of bitter frustration and anger out on one who was supposed to be on your team and decided not to be. And hey, on the chance that he was the Messiah, shouldn't he have had an ability to save himself and, and them by extension? Again, we're all basically on the same team, right? From one criminal's perspective, Jesus had failed to keep his end of the bargain, but still, like they were mostly kind of aligned. So, so like, help a brother out. Get us off these crosses. Let's, let's do this. Let's end this pain, and let's end the pain of the Jewish people. Let's overthrow Rome. What's wrong with you? Why are you such a screaming disappointment? Haven't we at times felt like that towards God? You had the power to save me, God. You had the power to heal this person that I love. You have the power to keep this terrible thing from happening. You're God. Why wouldn't you prove the love you profess and do something about this horrible situation? There are many things that we could say, many situations that we have felt helpless against the brokenness of the world, and we have sat there wondering why God doesn't just do the things that we want him to. Yeah, I can relate to the first thief on the cross beside Jesus. And Jesus is just sitting there taking it. And the other criminal lifts his head, painfully pushes himself up for a breath, and instead of joining and mocking Jesus, rebukes his counterpart. Don't you fear God, he asked. Don't you realize who it is you're talking to? Don't you get it? Then he continued saying, you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. What a journey for this criminal. The thief started out angry with Jesus, right? But here, before his death, he has a change of heart. He goes from from mocking to recognizing who Jesus is. He goes from anger to repentance, from rage to recognition. And in that recognition, there's this wrestling within himself. He knows who he is. And he knows he's not good enough. He knows that he has earned the death, that he is dying. He is getting what his deeds deserve, and he is sorrowful. At the same time, he recognizes that Jesus is not getting justice, but is actually the victim of injustice. That he has been wronged by the authorities. The criminal himself is on the cross for rebelling against. And so there he hangs, painfully aware of his own sin and in recognition of the divinity of Christ. What a place to be. A place we find ourselves, is it not? 
We too recognize that we are not all that we're supposed to be. We too recognize that we are sinful and broken. Our sins might not be similar. We may not be enemies of the state. But we know that sinfulness is painted with a broad brush. We've each fallen. We have each sinned against our neighbor and against God. We have each been selfish. We have said things we knew weren't true. We've gossiped, told stories about our friends or people we didn't like. We've been angry with each other. We've kept idols. We've celebrated vices. We've been envious. We've been prideful. There's so many sins that we have fallen into or chased after. And so we know that we too deserve the cross as punishment for sin. We too deserve death. And so when we look at the repentant thief, how tempting it is to paint him as the good guy. A Han Solo, an Aladdin, a Robin Hood. He did bad, but ultimately he recognized the truth and he, and he came around and he was good because he defended Jesus, right? So he was a bad guy, but because of how he ended up, we like to think of him as a good thief. It makes us feel better about our own failures when we look at him that way, Right? Our verses this morning are often viewed through this lens. The central figure becomes the good thief, the repentant sinner, the one that we can relate to, the one that gives us hope, the one that was saved by the skin of his teeth. So that when people, so that when, when people are, we look, sorry, when people we love are still not walking with the Lord, we have hope. Maybe they'll be like the thief on the cross and repent at the last minute. There's, there's still a chance. And, and church, that's true. There is. But if we're looking at these passages and it's the thief that is giving us hope, then our hope is misguided. For as Kent Hughes puts it in his commentary on Luke, Luke 23, 35-43 is not about a good thief, but about the goodness and saving grace of Jesus Christ. Luke 23, 35 to 43 is not about a good thief, but about the goodness and saving grace of Jesus Christ. We have a tendency to think that the thief earned his forgiveness because of his vocal support of Jesus. And so we want to think that maybe we've done enough to warrant Jesus' favor as well. That we're the rogue with the heart of gold, that we're the diamond in the rough that desperate times have called for desperate measures and God sees our intentions and knows that we're trying to stick up for him, and so we're the good thief. We're the good guy that found himself or herself in a bad situation. But church, that logic doesn't hold up. Because even the thief knew he had earned the death he was receiving. Unlike his counterpart, still calling out insults and yet asking Jesus to save him, the thief didn't say, take me to your kingdom. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's hanging on a cross, dying in recognition of not deserving any hope. He's dying of recognition, in recognition of receiving the justice that he has earned, and in recognition of his own failings, he is confessing the truth of Jesus. He swung from verbally abusing Christ to believing in him. The thief has swung from unbelief to faith. And so when Jesus responds to the thief and says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's not because he was good. It's not because he stuck up for Jesus. It's not because he turned on his counterpart. It's because of his faith. He believed. He recognized Jesus for who he is and believed. And that is why he is saved. How how crazy is it? 
that the grace and peace of God was poured out on this man who had just been mocking him. Jesus doesn't let the man's actions, his words, the sin that put him on the cross in the first place, he doesn't let any of that stand in the way of his grace and mercy pouring out upon this wayward but repentant soul. No, it is not the goodness of the thief, but the mercy of the Savior that stands out in this text. And what promise that is for us. We do not earn God's favor. The criminal had no opportunity to do anything good for God. He didn't have any time to earn God's favor. His hands were literally nailed down. There was nothing he could physically do for God. And yet he did the one thing that he could. He repented. And he turned to faith. And that's why he is in paradise with Jesus. That's why he entered the eternal kingdom. What a beautiful picture, church, of the immediacy of salvation. Today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't join some long wait list, right? His, his lifetime of failures doesn't put him in an awkward spot. You have to sit in limbo for a designated amount of time. Today, says the Savior, now when you die, you will be with me. Takes a bit of the sting out of death, doesn't it? Fills a person with hope to know that Jesus doesn't keep us holding on line one. There's an urgency to our reunion on the other side. And hallelujah, that is true for us as well. Our hope is not in our works not in how much money we give away, not in how kind we are, not in how moral we are, not in how well we obey the law, not in how gracious we are, not in how mission-minded we are. All those things are good. We're, we're encouraged, commanded even in Scripture to live that way, but none of those things will save us. It is only faith that saves faith in Jesus Christ. Recognition that as he hung there on the cross being mocked by the crowds, his clothes being gambled on by soldiers, and even his fellow convicts screaming obscenities at him. As he hung there, Jesus took your sin, my sin, the sin of the world upon himself. We didn't earn it. We, we didn't deserve it. But he took every time we've fallen short, every time we've stumbled, every time we've messed up, Jesus took all of it. And there on the cross, he died for it. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him and we confess that he is God, that we needed him to pay the price for sin that we could not, when we believe that he is who he says he is and he did what he says he did, then all the promises that God makes to his children are ours. Through faith, we live in the fruits of forgiveness. Through faith, the dirty rags of our sinfulness are taken from us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Through faith... We are brought into the family of God and declared co-heirs with Jesus. We are sinners just like that thief. And just like that thief, through faith, we are saved. What a beautiful promise for us. As we rest in that promise, as we sit in the recognition of God's love for us, His mercy and grace poured out over us and our inability to earn any of it, may we be encouraged and strengthened for the life of faith that God has called us to. Though the promise made to the convict nailed to a tree is a blessing and encouragement to us, for our hands are not currently nailed to trees. So church, let's not act like they are. We've been called to mission. We've been called to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and how he saves those that have no ability or hope of saving themselves themselves. 
which is just a longer way of saying that Jesus Christ came for everyone. He came for you, for me, for our neighbor. He came for both thieves and the crosses next to him. He came for everyone. And like the thieves, not all will come to faith. Not all will receive it. Not all will repent. But that did not stop Jesus from dying for them. And it should not stop us from proclaiming the gospel to them. Their faith journey is between them and the Lord. We are simply called to plant the seed. And though we plant the seed, it is the Lord who gives the growth. So let us answer God's call to join him on his mission of bringing the lost into his kingdom. Jesus' words to the thief on the cross are words of promise to all believers. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. They are proof of God's desire to save and his power to save. They are an encouragement for those who have a past they feel like they cannot escape. They are life for those who have come to the recognition that we cannot earn God's favor, but that it has been given to us. As this sermon this morning comes to a close, I'm going to leave you with the dying words of the devout astronomer Copernicus, who said, I do not ask for the grace that you gave St. Paul, nor do I ask for the grace you granted to St. Peter, but the mercy which you did show to the dying robber, that mercy show to me. Church, our God has poured out over us the mercy shown to the dying robber. What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, and loving God we serve. Amen.